Brought to you by PrayLatin.com, makers of prayer cards featuring complete English phonetic renderings of Latin pronunciations. Given that today is Thanksgiving in the United States, inevitably the minds of thoughtful Americans turns towards history, turns towards what God has blessed us with individually and as Americans, and should at least inspire a moment of reflection. If you are able to today, go to Mass. I know, Thanksgiving isn't a Catholic holiday, strictly speaking. In fact, we all know that the first Thanksgiving in the U.S. was celebrated by those who were not Catholic at all and were rather hostile to our faith. Yes, the pilgrims were opponents of the church and the papacy and the rest. Most of you probably knew that already. An interesting tidbit of history is that the indigenous man that we know saved their backsides, Squanto, as he came to be called by history, he was actually a Catholic. His name was actually Tisquantum. And some of the explorers before the pilgrims arrived took Squanto against his will to Europe, where he endured hardship. But he also learned and embraced the Catholic faith. Those who took him were not Catholic. They were English brigands, who took him to the markets of the Mediterranean, where he was rescued by Spanish friars. At that time, the church was against that whole practice. I know a lot of people dispute that, but the documents are there. The church stood against that. It was the rest of the world that took its sweet time coming to grips with it. According to a piece I found on U.S. Catholic... Quote, Squanto, to Squantum, freed from his chains, received the friar's message, but in a distinctly native way. Abinakai author Joseph Bruchak captures it well when he writes that Squanto allowed the quote-unquote men who served the creator to teach him, quote, about their ways of thinking the great mystery. Sometime after his baptism, Squanto began the unprecedented seven-year journey home. He made his way to England in 1617. He then found employment as a translator and got as far as Newfoundland. He was forced to return to England, but made a providential connection. Thomas Dermer, an influential navigator. Together they convinced a wealthy investor to finance an expedition, and in the early 1620s, Squanto was back in Donland, the native name for the New England shore. However, there was no beautiful homecoming for him. Patuk said his home village and the future site of Plymouth was wiped away by an affliction. Upon seeing the ghost town, one of Squanto's English companions called it a newfound Golgotha, but as with so many native thoughts, the record is silent about Squanto's reaction to the scattered bones of his relatives. End quote. It was at some point during this period that Tisquantum encountered the pilgrims, taught them rather basic agricultural skills, and taught them a now forgotten lesson in Catholic charity. As it turns out, American Catholic history has some interesting information that is appropriate to go over today. A patron suggested this topic to me, or at least part of it, what I'll spend the second half of this video on. And so I want to dive in a little bit to some of the more interesting points in American Catholic history that predate Catholicism in America becoming mainstream in the culture. The acceptance of Catholicism is partially due to John F. Kennedy's suspect rise to the high office in, the, in America, which included him swearing off the influence of his faith in his decision-making for governing the country, something no Catholic should ever celebrate. But let's get a couple of basic points of Catholic history right. We know that the first Thanksgiving was actually celebrated in America by Catholic missionaries in St. Augustine, Florida, and a mission by a Catholic missionary priest, and that mission is still there, to my knowledge, today. That Thanksgiving was a Mass, said in the 17th century, and the word Eucharist is often translated by people as Thanksgiving. It is the same thing as the Protestant Feast of Thanksgiving. No, not really, but it's interesting nonetheless. The first diocese established in America was in Baltimore. If you've ever wondered why the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops meets every year in Baltimore, I have the answer for you. From the history section of the Archdiocese of Baltimore's website, we get this, quote, The Archdiocese of Baltimore was established a diocese on November 6, 1789. Baltimore was established an archdiocese on April 8, 1808. 
It comprises the city of Baltimore and the following counties of Maryland. Allegheny, Anne Arundel, Baltimore, Carroll, Frederick, Garrett, Hartford, Howard, and Washington. The Archdiocese of Baltimore comprises over 4,800 square miles and has a Catholic population of 486,607. By a decree of the Sacred Congregation of the Propaganda, July 19, 1858, approved by His Holiness Pius IX, July 25, 1858, prerogative of place was conferred on the Archdiocese of Baltimore. By the explicit words of said decree of the Holy See, the Archbishop of Baltimore takes precedence over all the Archbishops of the United States, not the Cardinals, while in council, in gatherings, and meetings of whatever kind of the hierarchy, regardless of the seniority of other, other archbishops in promotion or, or ordination. The decree was signed by Cardinal Barnarbo on the 15th of August, 1858, end quote. If the ongoing synod on synodality results in a U.S.-wide synod, and it probably will, it will almost certainly take place in, in Baltimore. Whereas Rome is the first see in the church, Baltimore is the first see in America. Most Catholics don't know that. It's interesting. The establishment of Baltimore as the first seat in America was not only because it was literally the first diocese. It was given preeminent pride of place because of the anti-Catholic movements that were all over the country at the time, but especially in Baltimore. Two years prior, Baltimore was awash in upheaval because of such sentiments, where Catholics were seeking office locally and Protestants locally were objected rather strongly, resulting in the governor activating his security forces to calm the situation, which in all likelihood enabled the groups who opposed the church to win the contest. The first archbishop in America was John Carroll, S.J. Yes, a Jesuit archbishop. In hindsight, that explains a lot. <laughs> but in that time, we can assume that he sought the permissions necessary to be freed from his Jesuit oath against attaining high posts in the church. Archbishop Carroll was given the task of establishing the church in America which he succeeded in doing. He was a second cousin of Charles Carroll, the lukewarm Catholic signer of the Declaration of Independence. And I say lukewarm because everything we know he said and everything we that was said about him by his friends, including Ben Franklin, kind of point to it. But how John Carroll received the post is an interesting story. It begins with Pope Clement XIV suppressing the Jesuits in the late 18th century, where when then Father Carroll was a priest. He requested to be returned to Baltimore to serve as a priest in the local system, which was granted. Eventually, a discussion arose where he was considered for the post of a vicar apostolic for the entire United States, which would have resulted in a far different diocesan structure today if that had happened. Father Carroll objected and said it would be inappropriate for the U.S. to be under the direct rule of a Roman congregation at the time, and asked if the clergy could choose their first bishop instead. This is probably where Baltimore being granted a similar status in America as Rome has to the whole church comes from, for historically the Bishop of Rome was chosen directly by the clergy and before that by the people, before the modern conclave process began to emerge in antiquity. John Carroll was chosen to be the first bishop in America, and then the first Archbishop of Baltimore. From the Archdiocese of Baltimore's website we get this, quote, On November 6, 1789, by the pontifical brief Ex Hoc Apostolicae, Baltimore, where Carroll had lived since 1786, was made the first diocese of the United States with Carroll its bishop. On August 15, 1790, he was raised to the episcopacy in the chapel of the Weld family in Lulworth Castle in Dorset, England, where his friend Charles Plowden was chaplain, by Bishop Charles Walmsley, vicar apostolic of the Western District. In November 1791, Carroll held the only synod of his 25-year episcopacy, it concerned itself mostly with the administration of the sacraments and support of the church. Nothing was legislated in the area of education, Carroll's principal concern. As early as 1786, he had pushed for the creation of what would 
come to be called the Georgetown College. Carroll encouraged the building of churches by trustees in the matter of Episcopalian vestries. This he saw as the best way to secure church property involved the laity in the governance of the church. Trustees, however, proved unruly in the port cities of New York, Philadelphia, Charleston, and even Baltimore. Despite assertions to the contrary by historians such as John Gilmary Shea and Peter Golday, Carroll never, never repudiated the system, which worked well in the rural churches in Maryland. Trustees proved indispensable in the building of the magnificent cathedral that Carroll began in 1806, engaging the noted architect Benjamin Harry Latrobe. More vexing than troublesome trustees were the many problems priests with whom Carroll had to contend. One of the most notorious was Simon Felix Gallagher of Charleston, an eloquent uh, imbiber of spirits, with a large following. Carroll's policy towards such priests was one of forbearance, even kindness. One of his accomplishments, ignored by historians, was his ability to tame such troublemakers, even Gallagher. It was, however, the presence of irresponsible and contentious priests that probably convinced Carroll of the inadvisability of the Episcopal choosing by the clergy. End quote. Imagine if today priests could choose their own bishops. Honestly, the concept mortifies me to think about it. I mean, sure, in some dioceses, the more orthodox priests we have today would be able to choose a like-minded bishop, but imagine all those cases where the priests are much more aligned with modernism than their bishops are. Cases like in the Archdiocese of Portland, where Archbishop Sample is known for being like-minded with the likes of Cardinal Burke and Mueller's and the rest of the church. While his clergy are a little more modernist than he is, to put it mildly, and certainly not all of them, to be sure, I've met plenty of good priests in the Archdiocese of Portland, but it's still an issue. But that system went away, and Bishop Carroll was instrumental in the development of the diocesan system in America today. Incidentally, while Baltimore is the oldest diocese in America, Portland was the second archdiocese established in the United States, at one time making up everything west of the Mississippi. Now imagine a bishop on horseback or riding trains trying to go to all his parishes every year. You begin to understand where auxiliary bishops come from and why they were needed during the frontier days of American history. American Catholic history is interesting to say the least. Irish Catholics in the 1860s found themselves suddenly conscripted into the forces of the North in that conflict. In the early through mid-20th century, Catholics were directly responsible for reigning Hollywood in, giving us what some call the Golden Age of Hollywood. Catholic influence on that topic collapsed right after the Second Vatican Council, which is not a coincidence in the slightest. Thereafter, it was Catholics who first stood up against the Moloch issue, shaming Protestants into joining the cause to end that wicked practice in America, a fight we are still engaged in now 50 years after that fight began. But what have we become as a Catholic people in America? Are we happy with what we've become? I'll remind you that Advent is starting in just a few days, this coming Sunday to be precise. It's the beginning of the liturgical year, and traditionally it is the time of fasting and penance as well as joyful preparation for the coming of the Lord. And because it's a new year, traditionally when new years start, we try to take on a, a new better practice or break a bad habit. So if you haven't been enrolled in the Brown Scapular, maybe this is the time. Get enrolled and pray the Little Office of the Blessed Virgin Mary, the pre-1962 version if you can. This is the time of year to do that. Now I have a video on the topic of making a good Advent if you want more information. I ask that everyone consider making a Holy Advent this year. Try if you can to keep the fasts and abstinences that traditionally go with the season for penance for the sins of the hierarchy, for the salvation of their souls, as well as for your salvation and mine. The times call for us to really get serious about our sanctity, and there's no better way than to do that than to do what our Lord said to do to banish demons. You pray and you fast. It's not that hard. I mean, it's, fasting can be hard, but it's not that complicated. 
Advent is upon us. So enjoy this feast today as we turn our eyes towards Advent. And what did you think of all this? I thought something lighter would be in order for today. I'll have a regular sort of coverage return tomorrow. Let me know if you like these little dives into Catholic history in the comments, please. They're certainly not meant to be this complicated look at a minutia of history, though. You're not going to get all the finer details of the, you know, Carol Episcopacy or anything. But let me know your thoughts in the comments, and like and subscribe if you haven't. It really does help. As always, pray for the Church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.